All right, church fam, go ahead and find your seats. Go ahead and find your seats. What we just learned in that host spot is that Matt has now made himself on two lists that you don't want to be on, the TSA no travel list and mine. Um, two lists you don't want to be on. No, I love it. I think it's hilarious. Uh, hey, I'm a little, if you've noticed today, I'm moving kind of slow. I'm a little gimpy. I got, um, I acted like a 23-year-old instead of 43-year-old in soccer practice uh, on Friday and decided to hop on the field and, and scrimmage uh, and got cleated in the foot. I had someone step on my foot and it just decided to, to start to hurt last night. So if the building catches on fire, save yourselves, right? Um, I will not be able to get out in time, but that's okay. I'm ready to see Jesus, right? So save yourselves. There are the exits and all that kind of stuff. Hey, uh, yesterday we actually got to do something that I love. One of my favorite, most favorite events here uh, at Adventure was our annual backpack giveaway. Uh, Christy Dorsey and the, the Renew Ministry crew did an amazing job of reaching out into the community, also um, equipping our church family here to, to help kids and families um, in this area uh, with single-parent families, families in need, thing like that things like that. You know, like Matt just talked about, we talk about generosity here. Um, your generosity by going out and, and getting school supplies, bringing those things in. I've talked to a couple people who even their office, like their work, allowed them to expense uh, purchasing school supplies, bringing those things in. It, it let us yesterday give out 165, 165 backpacks um, to families. Yeah, it's amazing. So thank you all. Um, for doing that, for helping us do that. We actually ran out. Like, it's one of the first times that that's happened in a while. Um, so that just tells us, right, that goes to show that there's a need in our community. Uh, and there's going to be other ways to, to serve our community as we go into the fall. Like, every fall we collect coats uh, to give to families. But like Matt was talking about next week, School Blitz, that is an amazing way to show this community in J-Town that we care about them, right? And we talk about this a lot uh, when it comes to evangelism, what it means to share Jesus, that people have to know that you care before they care about what you know. And so this is a great opportunity to do that. I just want to say thank you, church, for letting us give, helping us to give away 165 backpacks. And then next week, again, is an amazing opportunity to not just talk about loving our community, but actually to say, hey, we're going to, we're gonna, it's that important for us to take a Sunday and actually go serve our community together. Um, so it's going to be awesome. It's a lot of fun to show up for that. Next week, it's going to be a blast. Let me, let me pray for us, and then we're going we're gonna to dive in today. Jesus, we love you. Um, we pray today, Jesus, that um, as we wrap up this, this uncanceled series, Lord, I know that there may be some of us still in the room, or maybe we've got friends or family, uh, that for whatever reason, we still think that this whole idea of your love, your grace, your mercy, what you offer us is, is kind of meant for everybody but us. Like, we're the exception. We're the one that's like, yeah, I don't know that he can save this. I don't know that he can undo this or redeem this or restore this or renovate this. That I'm too far gone. I'm too messy. I'm too broken. I'm a lost cause. And so today, Jesus, I, I just pray that as we bring this, this series to a close, that if there are any holdouts in the room that are still believing that, uh, Lord, today that your spirit would, would, would just invade this space in our hearts, would break up the, the, the concrete, whatever it is around our hearts, the lies that we buy, the narratives that we follow that say you'll never be enough, you're not good enough, Jesus doesn't like you, Jesus doesn't love you. Father, that those things would, would fall apart today and we get to experience your love, maybe for the first time. We would be able to come out from underneath shame. We'd be able to come out from underneath our pasts. Uh, Lord, even our presence would begin to change because we've had the opportunity to, to bump into you today. Jesus, that's all we do, right? We, we just throw a party. We throw a party every Sunday for you. Um, and we're just so loved. We, we just are so, so thankful and so grateful that you show up, that you show up to the party that's thrown by a bunch of sinners and messy people for you, that you arrive, you show up, you're the guest of honor. And so we just say welcome, and we're so glad that you're here with us today, Jesus. We pray all this in your name. Everybody said. Amen. One of the, the kind of common icebreaker stories that you get asked a lot is like, tell us about your most embarrassing moment, right? And most of the time we can tell some version of a story about, you know, our most embarrassing moment ever. Uh, I remember for me when I was in high school, um, I, I transferred, I, I went to a, uh, a, a, a Christian school, right? And at the time, um, I wasn't really big on Jesus, right? At the time, wasn't super excited about Jesus, didn't really want to be around people who believe in Jesus, and, and the school that I went to, our basketball team made it to the state tournament, right, the state championship, and we were going to go to, to Rupp Arena to watch the team play, and all of my friends who had just turned 16 were driving, 
And my parents said, you can't do that. Like, we don't trust you on the road, let alone a one-hour road trip with all of your friends in your car down to Lexington. So as much as I fought them, as hard as I fought them, they made me ride the bus, right, with all the freshmen and sophomores. I didn't want to be on the bus, right? I didn't want to do that. So I get on the bus, you know, and I'm already grumpy. And back then... How many of us remember Discman's, right? Like your like your portable CD player that you had to like carry and like let it because if it ran over a bump at all, it would skip, right? So I had my Discman. I put my headphones on. I'm listening to some music, and and again, just in that moment, decided to to kind of let my 16 year old angst, the fact that I'm angry at my parents for not letting me drive, like why don't you trust me? Why don't you trust your 16 year old son who just got his license about a month ago, right? To drive he and his friends an hour down the road to Lexington. Why don't you trust me? You should trust me, right? Angst and angst for being on the bus. I didn't want to be there. And so with my headphones on, whatever song was playing, I just started singing out loud, I don't want to be on this bus. I don't want to be on this. I hate this bus. This bus is awful. And my friend behind me starts punching me in the back of the head, going, stop. And I realized that as I look up, the teacher that was the chaperone was praying for the bus. (laughs) And I'm in the middle of the prayer I don't want to be on this bus. I hate everybody. You know, you know, and, and it was like, oh, my gosh. And the re- like the rest of the time, it was like I just kind of sat by myself. You know, it was, no one wanted to sit with me. It's like, this dude hates us. Um, he doesn't want to be here. Embarrassing moment. Now, is that my most embarrassing moment? It's the most embarrassing moment I can share with you all, right? So, but there are other embarrassing moments, right, that we have in our lives. And I read a story this week in, in 2015. A 12-year-old boy in, in Taiwan became famous after an incident on a school field trip to an art exhibit that showcased, like, Italian Renaissance artists. And he wasn't paying attention. There's actually security footage. You can go watch this on YouTube. He wasn't paying attention to where he was walking, and he he tripped over a stanchion on the floor, and the only thing that he could catch himself on was a 350-year-old oil painting valued at $1.5 million. There's now, like, if you, there's even a picture of this, there's a hole in that painting roughly the size of a 12-year-old's fist. Right, just punched a hole right through this $1.5 million, 350-year-old painting. And I read another story not long before that. A 42-year-old guy in England was visiting one of the history museums in Cambridge, and he tripped over his untied shoelace and stumbled into a row of 300-year-old Chinese vases and started the world's most expensive domino effect. All he could do, and you can imagine this, all he could do, he said after they interviewed him, all I could do was stand and watch in horror as each vase valued at over $150,000 a piece fell into the next one and the next one and the next one and shattered on the ground. I mean, there's, those are some embarrassing moments, right? Some that we'll never forget. Maybe some of us don't come with that kind of a price tag, but we've all got these inv- embarrassing moments that we go, I'm never going to forget that, right? That was embarrassing, and most of, for most of us, for the most part, we can look back on those and we can laugh. At least we can laugh enough to keep from crying, right, when we share those stories. And some people might even ask us in that moment, like, what were you thinking? It's like, I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking, right? For me, on that bus, I mean, I was just I was an angsty 16-year-old kid. I was like, i got to let this out somewhere. Might as well just let it out via song in the back of the bus while the teacher is praying, Right? What were you thinking? But people ask us, what were you thinking? What were you thinking in the middle of that embarrassing moment that happened to you? Or what were you thinking that that led up to, like, you being the main culprit, right, the cause of this embarrassing moment? You know, and again, if we play Monday morning quarterback, we can can figure that stuff out. We can go, yeah, this is kind of what I was thinking. This is where I was at. Or I wasn't thinking at all. I didn't think it would turn out like that. I didn't think that would happen. I wasn't paying attention. Like the kid in Taiwan could say, I just wasn't. I wasn't paying attention to where I was going, right? The guy in England could say, you know, maybe I should have tied my shoes. I didn't even realize my my shoe was untied. And maybe you've had a similar response. I didn't know. I wasn't aware. I didn't know where I was going, didn't know what was happening, didn't realize that, that this was the condition, right? I didn't think that that would happen. Like that, 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 that boy on that field trip didn't think that he would fall through a $1.5 million painting. And that man in that history museum didn't think when he walked into the museum that he would cause a million-dollar domino effect that would destroy 300-year-old pieces of pottery. And maybe some of us are in that same boat. It's like, I didn't think that would happen. That's not what I thought would happen. I didn't count on that. I didn't know that was going to happen. But usually when it comes to, to, to embarrassing moments in our lives, we can, we can come to a place where we can laugh, right, to a degree, 
right? Maybe we still cringe a little bit. Maybe you still it's one of those, like, oh, I don't want to tell this story, but here's what happened. Like those embarrassing moments that happened to us are maybe the, the, the times that we caused an embarrassing moment for somebody else. But here's the deal. All the laughing and all the joking go out the window when the embarrassment shifts from a moment in time and onto a part of who we are, a part of our lives. I think it's different when it's no longer about something embarrassing that happened or was happening to us, but instead is really about and really and truly about something embarrassing about us. It's not just a story about, hey, this was this time I did something dumb when I was a kid. It's this, there's, there's a part of who I am that I don't want anybody to see or anybody to know about because I'm not sure what would happen if they found out. So you're not embarrassed by like a past moment or, or an event. You're embarrassed by your past. If anybody found out who I used to be, what I used to do, they, they'd run, right? There'd be no friendship. There'd be no relationship. They would run away from me as fast as they could. And maybe for some of us, like, the, the embarrassment isn't past tense. Maybe it's present tense. It's happening now. Like, if anybody found out about that addiction, like, if I share that with somebody else, it's going to blow up my reputation. These, these habits, these patterns of behavior that, that, I, that I still fall into, I do it to numb the pain, right? I do it to deal with frustration. I, I do it sometimes just to avoid dealing with, with stuff altogether. But for some of us, there's this kind of self-destructive, unhealthy habit in our lives that if anybody found out about it, it wouldn't just be an embarrassing moment. You're not sure if you could show your face around those people again. And here's what happens. After a while, if we let it go unchecked, our embarrassment can easily turn into shame. And these, these what were you thinking type questions, like what were you thinking? The questions we get in those moments, they just drive us deeper and deeper and deeper into shame. What were you thinking? You got busted. What were you thinking? You got caught. What were you thinking? They found out. What were you thinking? We've talked about this before, but, but I think it's important for us to understand that there is a profound and massive difference between guilt and shame. See, guilt would say to us, you've done something embarrassing. Shame would say to us, you're an embarrassment. See, guilt points to behavior, but shame works its way into our identity, becomes a part of who we are. And one of the main side effects of shame is this. It's disconnection and disintegration, right? We disconnect and we kind of disintegrate from others. We disconnect and we disintegrate ourselves from God. We, we disconnect and we disintegrate ourse from ourselves even. We do this. We pull back and we wall off these parts of who we are in hopes that maybe if we just pretend that that never happened or maybe if we just play like that's not what we do, then maybe one of these days it'll all go away. And when shame is present in our lives, here's what happens. We, just kind of a byproduct of this, we limit our connection with other people, we limit our connection with God, and we limit our connection with ourselves. Like we talk a lot in here about integrity. Right? In, our, in our men's series, we talked about character and integrity. What does it mean to, to be someone that lives in integrity? Right? Integrity is having an integrated life. It means that, that there are parts of your story, my story, all of us. There are parts of our story that we look back and go, oh, that was an embarrassment. Like, I screwed up. I messed up. Like, I hurt people. I hurt, I had this, this did harm to, to me, my family, people around me, whatever it, whatever it may be, right? We, we look back at that and we go, ah. But there's still a part of us that looks at that moment in that story and even looks at ourselves in that story and we integrate it into part of who we are. That would, that's what it means to, to live in integrity. It means to be able to live at peace with your whole self and every part of your story. But shame causes us to disintegrate, right? It causes us to kind of compartmentalize and actually segregate our stories. Like this part of my life is over here. This part of my life is over here. This part, and I don't need these things mixing together and I don't need anybody finding out about that. Shame causes us to live outside of integrity because it disintegrates and segregates our lives. It pulls our, our lives apart. See, when shame is present, 
in our lives. Every relational connection we make also comes with this, whether it's intentional or not, strategic level of disconnectedness and disintegration that says this, I can only let you get so close, otherwise you might see that I'm an embarrassment. Shame causes us to kind of keep people at arm's length, right? We don't want people to get too close because they might see who we really are. They might detect the flaws. They might be able to see the things that we don't want other people to see. So if you got your Bibles with you this morning or your Bible app, open up to Luke chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 40. I think this is mine. I don't know. Start in verse 40. Luke chapter 8, start in verse 40. Here's what it says. It says, now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was the ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Now, a couple things about this, right? Just so we have some context about what's going on and where, where all this stuff is happening. Uh, a couple weeks ago, my good friend Rick Kyle preached about the moment where Jesus and his disciples crossed to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, right? And on the other side, Jesus encounters and heals this demon-possessed man, right? Jesus cast a legion, a thousand demons out of this man into a herd of pigs that run down the hill into the water and drown, right? Crazy moment. And then they look at him and say, we would like for you to go back to where you came from, right? It's kind of a wild moment. But where we're picking up here is right after Jesus and his crew get back from that whole experience. And Luke tells us that there's a crowd waiting for Jesus and his disciples. And I'm sure they had all kinds of questions, right? See, water, if you've ever, ever been around water, water carries sound, Right? In the Sea of Galilee, we think we hear the word sea and we think massive body of water. It's really just a big lake. Right? You can see the other side from just about any point when you're going around the Sea of Galilee. It's just a big lake. So water carries sound, and I'm sure that Jesus casting a thousand demons out of a man into a herd of pigs, that herd of pigs running down a hill and into the water probably made some noise. And so they would have heard this. The people that were on the other side where Jesus and his disciples left from, they would have heard all of that stuff going down. They would have heard this man screaming at Jesus. They would have heard the, the chaos of a thousand pigs running into the, to the water and drowning, a herd of pigs running into the water. The, the crowd was eager to hear, like, what happened? What happened when you guys went over there? Plus, going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee was kind of like taboo, not really looked upon. Fit. So they're like, hey, what's it like? like? What's it like over there? What was it like in that space? We're not really supposed to go there. What's it like? So this crowd is waiting to hear from Jesus, to hear from them, like, what happened? And in the midst of this crowd, Luke tells us there's a guy named Jairus who is the ruler of the synagogue. And he tells us that he comes in the middle of this crowd and falls at Jesus' feet and begs him to come save his 12-year-old daughter that's dying. In fact, Luke says he had an only daughter, which is the same kind of like phrase when we talk about John 3.16, that God gave his only son. Right? The reason even that that only is in there is it shows how important they are. Right? The Jairus had an only daughter. This is my only daughter. And dad's like, girl dads, you know this, right? You, it's your only daughter, right? That's your daughter. You'd give your life for your daughter. Your daughter is important. You know this. So he comes to Jesus going, I've got an only daughter, and she's dying. But one thing you have to remember is this. Luke tells us that Jairus is, is a ruler of the synagogue, right? So that means he's in charge of church. And when he came to Jesus, at this point, Jesus and, and his disciples and Jairus and the religious leaders and the church people were kind of on opposite teams. And Jairus and the, the, the people that were kind of running the religious system back in the day, they looked at somebody like Jesus and said, like, he's a threat to our authority, we don't support Jesus. We're on the opposite side of Jesus. We're trying, we're trying to discredit and debunk Jesus, right? We don't seek Jesus out in the middle of a crowd. And, and we know this. Like throughout the series, we've seen and we've learned that the, the religious leaders, that kind of the self-righteous churchy people, they were kind of firmly on the side and in this camp of, of religious cancel culture. And see, in their minds, being the judge, jury, and executioner of religion was part of like what God... In their minds, it was their God-given duty. They kind of misinterpreted, right, over time, 
kind of drifted away from what God really wanted them to do, and they felt like it was their mission to make sure that no one brought their mess into church. And they were the ones that got to decide who got in and who didn't. So the mission and, and the culture and, and the kingdom of like the religious and self-righteous people, right, that was at odds. It clashed with Jesus' mission and his kingdom. As, as we said, religious cancel culture looks to disavow, discredit, disown, and detach. And we'll talk about why here in just a minute. Like why does religious cancel culture look to discredit, detach, and disown, and disavow? Like you don't, we, like we don't know you. You're not a part of us. You don't belong here. You don't fit here. Like, why would church do that? We're going to answer that question here in just a second. But that's kind of their, their mode. It's like we, we, their job was to figure out who could get in and who couldn't. Who the church would say, yeah, they're one of us. And who the church would say, no, nah, that, that, they're not a part of this. And Jesus, like, again, they're at odds. Jesus is uncancel kingdom culture. It looked to restore, redeem, rescue, and renovate, right? We've been saying this every week, that there's no such thing as too far gone, too damaged, too broken, or a lost cause to Jesus. And so Jesus threatened every aspect of religious and self-righteous cancel culture authority. And because of that, the the religious leaders and and the self-righteous crew, they deemed being a believer and follower of Jesus as a cancelable offense, If you were a believer or you were a follower of Jesus, if you were his disciple to believe in, to trust, or to follow Jesus, that got you exiled and excommunicated and cast out of the church. So Jairus, Luke tells us, is a ruler of the synagogue, which means this, he was literally the director of worship in the temple. And locally, he would have been really well known and recognized. Because this was a guy that put together the, the worship service, that led the worship service in the temple. This was the guy that, that led church. And people in this community would have recognized him. They would have known who Jairus was. And so what we have to take away from this is that Jairus coming to Jesus, falling on his feet in public in front of a crowd, right? He's putting his entire livelihood and reputation on the line by seeking Jesus to save his only daughter. This would have been seen as a disqualifying act. And, and, and it would have been an embarrassment to the religious community back in this day. They would have said, how dare you seek Jesus? Like, what were you thinking? The people in the crowd, they would have known who Jairus was. They would have known that he was the pastor. He was the leader of the, of the church in town. And word would have gotten around pretty fast. Hey, the, the leader of the church, the pastor, the guy that leads worship in the church, like, yeah, he's, he sought Jesus in public. Jairus knew, these people are going to see me, and they're going to look at me, and the religious leaders are going to say to me, Jairus, you're an embarrassment. You're embarrassing yourself. Jairus knew that this would be grounds for being canceled, that he would be fired from his job, that he would lose his status, that he would lose his influence, and it's all happening in public, right? So there's no hiding it. I mean, there have been times that, that Pharisees and religious leaders have sought Jesus, but they've sought Jesus in, like, the cover of darkness. It was like a stealth mission of, like, hey, I really need to ask Jesus kind of a personal question, um, but I'm going to do that in the middle of the night, right? Stealth mission, find Jesus. But there's no hiding this. In the desperation to save his 12-year-old little girl, none of that mattered. But what we know is Jairus isn't the only one risking embarrassment. And all the consequences that come with it. There's somebody else in the crowd that's also putting everything on the line to get close to Jesus. Let's pick back up in verse 42. It says this, as Jesus went, the people pressed in around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. You know what I'm talking about, okay? Don't need to explain that one. So, and and she, it says this, and though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. So this woman The Bible tells us that she had suffered under the care of doctors and healers and magi, wise men. I mean, who who knows, right? To the point that she had spent all of her money, everything that she had. She spent her entire living on a cure, seeking a cure, hoping that at least someone could could help her identify the, the cause, but it didn't work. It failed. So she was out of luck, out of options, out of money. And every person she went to to seek some kind of advice and some, some sort of counsel, they said, I'm sorry. We just don't know what's wrong with you. We can't fix you. 
Luke tells us, again, that this has gone on for 12 years. And if you notice, right, like we'll circle back to this here in a sec too, right? There's a 12-year-old girl dying, and this woman has been suffering for 12 years. It's like there's more than just a coincidence there. That number matters, and we'll talk about it here in just a minute. But, but here's what I want us to understand. This, this woman's suffering wasn't just personal. It wasn't just biological. It was cultural. See, because she was bleeding, she was banned from coming near people. See, Jewish law declared that that while women were in their menstrual cycle and bleeding, they were deemed unclean for at least seven days. And in that time, anybody that touched them or anyone they came in contact with would also have been unclean. And I'm talking about like even like brushing up against someone like lightly, right? That would have caused you to be deemed and declared unclean. And now because you were unclean, you would have to go through these ceremonial and ritualistic washing processes to become clean again. And people who were declared unclean, they, they couldn't make sacrifices at the temple. They couldn't worship at the temple. They couldn't go into the temple. Church was off limits because you were seen as dirty. If you were unclean, you didn't venture out in public. Why? Because you were seen as a danger to others. The common custom back for, for people in this day who were deemed and declared unclean, if you had to venture out into public for any reason at all, you had to take a bell with you and ring that bell and shout unclean so that everybody would know not to touch you. So if that was you, in most circumstances, what you would do is you would bunker down and not leave your house unless you absolutely had to. As long as you were unclean, as long as you were in an unclean state, you had to go without any human contact. So imagine that. This woman, all of that has been going on for over a decade She was deemed and declared unclean, untreatable, unfixable. She hadn't been able to go to worship or go to church in 12 years. She wasn't really allowed in public. And every time she were were to leave her house, she has to make sure that she takes her bell with her and that she's able to shout out unclean so that everybody will know to avoid her. Like she's ringing that bell and shouting unclean and people are like literally passing on the other side of the street. Can you imagine what that would have felt like? And on top of that, Outside of the few people that she sought medical help from, she hasn't had really any kind of physical contact from another person. There was no hug. There was no encouragement. There was no, let me put my hands on you and pray for you. Going without touch, going without contact. She was totally and utterly alone. And on top of that, Like we saw a couple weeks ago, like we talked about the blind man a couple weeks ago, the common assumption for people back in this day was if you were sick, if you had a sickness, it was because it was connected to and it was related to sin. Sickness and sin were were connected to one another, right? If you were sick, it was this. It was that, that either you sinned or somebody in your family sinned. And so really by the fact that you were sick and untreatable and uncurable, what that meant was you're just getting what you deserve because you're a sinner. To the religious leaders, here's what it was like. Sin, sin was seen and understood as something that, that hurts and damages communities, because it does. I mean, sin is what damages communities. Sin is what divides people. Sin is what sets people at one another. Sin does damage and hurt communities. Sin ruins cities and towns because it ruins people. And because sickness and sin were connected... The religious leaders, what they believed was that that sickness was evidence of sin in your life. And because we remove all sin from our community, we have to remove all sick people from our community. Don't come in public. Don't step into this place. We don't want your mess to ruin us. So this woman, she risked everything to seek out and get close to Jesus. One author I read this week said this. This woman, her intention was to go unnoticed because of the embarrassment of her illness. And the sheer audacity that she showed in kind of breaking her her ritual isolation. The fact that she was supposed to be alone, isolated, separated, cast out, not coming back into public, let alone a crowd. But she thought maybe this crowd is big enough that it will provide the perfect cover for me to take a chance to get close to Jesus. So there's some commonality in these two stories. See, both this woman and Jairus, they're putting their lives on the line to get close to Jesus. And you might think, you're going to sit down with them, and they're going to tell you their plan. 
Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, the pastor, the, the, the guy that puts worship services, the, the, the guy that everybody recognizes, the guy that's on the opposite team of Jesus. Here's my plan. When Jesus gets back from the other side of the Sea of Galilee, I'm going to go to him so he can save my 12-year-old daughter. Someone would have looked at Jairus and said, what are you thinking? You're going to lose everything. What are you thinking? For this woman, if she were to share her plan with somebody, it's like, hey, this crowd might be the perfect cover. It might be the moment. I've tried everything. I've spent my last cent on trying to be healed and put back together, and none of it's worked. Everybody just looked at me and said, we don't know what's wrong with you. We can't fix you. So I think I'm going to use the crowd as cover, and I'm going to go see if I can get close to Jesus. What are you thinking? Do you know what will happen if they find you? Do you know what's going to happen to you if, if you get discovered? They'll kill you. For Jairus, he's willing to face the consequences of embarrassment and disgrace from the religious community as a result of turning to Jesus in a moment of need to save his child. Yeah, I know exactly what I'm thinking. I know exactly what I'm and I'm willing to risk it all if it will save my only daughter. For the woman, it's the same thing. It's the fact that this, this might be a way out of this 12-year suffering, right? The, the, the way I've suffered under the, the rules of the religious leaders, right? That she's willing to face the consequences of breaking religious law and potentially facing death as a result. What are you thinking? I know exactly what I'm thinking. i got to get close to Jesus. This week I, I read a study that was done recently on the pain of public rejection. Like what happens when we get rejected? Social, public rejection. It was done, the study was done to kind of demonstrate some of the unintended or, or really even the, the consequences that we're unaware of when it comes to cancel culture. And what happens? What happens to the people who get on the wrong side of cancel culture and find themselves disqualified? Here's what they found. Here's kind of the, the summation of their study. The researchers discovered that, that social and public rejection activates the same centers in our brain that respond to physical pain. I think this is interesting. So like when you stub your toe, or like maybe you accidentally touch a hot stove, right? Your brain reads that. That hurts. That's pain. Ouch. When I got stepped on at soccer practice, right? Ouch. That hurts. My brain knew that hurts. You are hurt. Your brain reads it the exact same way when you get rejected. When you face social and public rejection, your brain reads it the exact same way. When you find yourself pushed out, disqualified, uninvited, there's zero difference. Rejection and physical pain are read the exact same way in our brains. So every time, every time that woman had to ring that bell and shout out unclean and watch all the people in town move, from, move to the opposite side of the street to avoid touching her, her brain was literally saying, you've been wounded. You're hurt. Every time that bell rang, that was another wound, another cut, another hurt. As Jairus is weighing out the risks of seeking Jesus in public and what that would cost, his brain would have told him, Jairus, you're going to get hurt because they're going to reject you. They're going to cancel you. And some of us in this room know exactly what that feels like. We know what it feels like to feel the hurt of rejection. We know what it feels like to feel the hurt of being disqualified, of being uninvited. We know what that feels like. Our brains read that as physical pain, and we know it. But here's what happens. Let's pick back up. Verse 44. We're going to read a big chunk here together. It says this. She came up behind Jesus, and she touched the fringe of his garment and immediately Luke tells us that her discharge of blood ceased. Now Luke's a physician, Luke's a doctor. So Luke's looking at this from like a medical perspective, right? He would have known what's going on. He said immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? Put yourself in her shoes for a second. You're going, uh-oh. He knows. Uh-oh, like I just kind of, my intention was to go unnoticed. My intention was to go unnoticed and just kind of maybe reach out from the crowd and just touch like maybe the edge of his jacket or like the, 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 the sleeve on his shirt. That's all I wanted to do. And Jesus goes, who touched me? Ah, he knows. And then I love this. When all denied it, Peter, again, like Jesus, um, 
there's a crowd around you. Everyone's touching you, right? Jesus, like, I love when Peter, like, tries to get smart. <laughs> you know, like, there's several times he does that. Like, Peter's like, um, actually, Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Someone touched me because I perceive that power has gone out from me. Something happened. And again, if you're this woman, you're going, uh-oh, he really knows. And then it says this, when the woman saw that she was not hidden. Just like those embarrassing moments we have when things don't go like we want. This is an embarrassing moment. I, I, didn't, I didn't plan this. I didn't, I didn't plan that Jesus would know. I didn't plan that I'd be found out. I, I didn't, this is, what were you thinking? I don't know. She came trembling, it says, and she fell down before him, and she declared in the presence of all people why she touched him, which means this. Her story came out in public. And then people probably in that crowd are going, wait a minute, she touched me. Well, me too. Well, she, she bumped into me. Well, I, I touched her. Like, I, she brushed past me in this crowd. And you're thinking, they're going, what were you thinking? Right? Your mess has put us all at risk. You just confessed all this to Jesus. You, you just confessed all this in public. Your mess has put us all at risk. Now, we all have to go do this. Like, what were you thinking? But then she finishes the story, and she says that I was healed immediately. And then Jesus said to her, daughter... Your faith, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. We'll circle back to this moment in a second. Let's keep going. It says, while he was still speaking to this woman, while Jesus and this woman were having this conversation in the midst of this crowd, someone from Jairus' home came and said, listen, Jairus, your, your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. Again, what you read from this is the people in Jairus' circle, those religious leaders, the people that would have worked in that religious community, they wouldn't even call Jesus by name. Like they didn't, they were they were so set up against Jesus that they wouldn't they wouldn't call him by name. Just leave the teacher alone. See, we told you. And I'm sure there was an element of this, right? I'm sure there was an element of like, see, Jairus, we told you. We told you he he couldn't do anything. We told you not to mess with him. We told you all the things you're gonna put at risk by going to him. And, and really at the end of the day, Jairus, where did you get? What has this done for you? You're going to lose everything and your daughter. Leave the teacher alone. He can't help you. We told you so. But Jesus, hearing this, answered, said, don't fear, only believe. And she'll be well. And so he goes to the house and he said that he allowed no one to enter with him except for Peter, John, and James, and the father and the mother of the child. And they were all weeping and they were all mourning for her. And he said, don't weep, for she's not dead, she's asleep. And again, imagine Jairus' circle. They already think Jesus is, is, is crazy. They're already set up against him, right? They start laughing at him. Like, Jesus, come on. They knew she was dead. They knew in their mind she's dead. But Jesus takes her by the hand and says this, child, arise. And Luke tells us that her spirit returned and she got up at once. And he directed somebody to give her something to eat, right? When you come back from death, you're probably hungry. Give her a snack. How about a peanut butter cracker, right? Orange slices and, and some Capri Sun, right? Let's help you out. Let's get your blood sugar back up, right? And it says this, her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one about what had happened. And I've always wondered why Jesus, Jesus there's a handful of times that Jesus did this. And this is just my opinion, right? I didn't read this in a commentary. I didn't read this anywhere. This is just my opinion. Here's what I think. I think Jesus knew how much Jairus had risked by coming to him. That Jesus said, hey, listen, don't, don't, if there's a way, Jairus, that, that you can, you know who I am, but there's, if there's a way in this that you can kind of keep your job and keep your role, just keep this between me and your family. And then you don't have to suffer public disgrace. There's a part of me that was like, Jesus was going, I know Jesus was not wanting to get famous for all the wrong reasons, right? But there's a part of me that, that, that thinks Jesus was still in some way, shape, or form trying to protect Jairus and his family. Hey, let's just keep this between us. Go back to do your church job. Now you know the truth about who I am. So let's land the plane, right? Land the plane on the series. Today's the series finale. There are a couple of things that I want us to catch as we wrap up, right? The first is this, how Jesus speaks to the woman, how Jesus speaks to Jairus, and how he speaks to the young girl. So we can imagine this. 
that, that imagine you're this woman, right, and you have to, in public, kind of put all of the stuff that you've, that you've hidden from people, all of your suffering, all of the embarrassment, all of the shame, the stuff that you hope no one ever found out about, you have to spill your guts in public. And now everybody knows your story. What does Jesus say to her? He calls her daughter. And that's important. See, the word that, that, that Jesus used to address the woman literally means this. It means accepted one. Or the one that I've accepted. Or the one that I accept as mine. When Jesus calls her daughter, though she had been rejected by everyone for the last decade plus, Jesus says, I accept you. I accept you as mine. It implies ownership, right? The one that I accept is mine. To to Jairus, what Jesus says is this, don't fear, believe, and your daughter, your only daughter, will be made well. Literally, it means this, have confidence in me that she will be, the Greek word is sozoed, right? I added the past tense. She'll be sozoed, which means this, rescued from the brink of destruction. Jesus says, listen, I don't like, I I don't even have to go to your house, Jairus. Like, that's how in charge of things I am. That's how powerful, I don't have to go to your, Jairus, just just have confidence in me. Put your confidence in me, and your your daughter will be rescued from the brink of destruction. And then to this young girl, Jesus says, child, arise. Again, this word that Jesus uses is similar to the word daughter. It implies guardianship, and it literally means this. What I guard or who I protect come back from ruin. The one who is mine, come back from ruin, come back from death. And there are a lot of us in the room, some of us in the room that know this. Not all death is physical. There are parts of our lives that have been ruined. There are relationships that have been ruined. There are reputations that have been ruined. And it feels like part of us died. Jesus says, come back. Come back from ruin. The one who I guard, the one who I protect, the one who is my responsibility, come back from ruin. And here's what I love. Jesus, he doesn't just heal them physically. He restores their identity by declaring who and whose they are. He says to the, to the bleeding woman, you're mine. I accept you. He says to the, to the little girl, you're, you're the one that I protect. You're part of my flock. I'm responsible for you. And here's why this number 12 comes into play, right? I really hadn't noticed, really, until we went to student camp. And the, the camp pastor one night was preaching the same story. And he, he said even, like, hey, have you ever noticed that, like, this woman had been suffering for 12 years and, and Jairus' daughter was also 12 years old? Like, that can't just be a coincidence, right? And I'm going, you're right, it can't. And I had never noticed that before. I thought to myself, there's got to be something there, right? Not just a coincidence. And here's what I learned this week. That in the Bible, the number 12 is symbolic, and it serves as a reminder and a marker of the territory where God has authority. So there's 12 tribes in Israel, right? When they would make altars, they would make altars of 12 stones. Jesus had 12 disciples. That number 12 is symbolic, and it represents the territory and the place where God has authority. This woman and Jairus had a common dilemma. They lived in the fear of the powers and authorities that were either victimizing them currently or could victimize them, and they had no control over that no matter how hard they tried. The woman had no control over the religious community that was victimizing her. She couldn't stop that. Jairus had no control over the consequences and what might happen to him by him coming to Jesus. He had no control over that. But here's what they both just learned. And here's what we need to learn from this series is this. The powers that victimize me that I have no control over, Jesus has full control over and he gets the final say. Can I get an amen? Let that sink in. There is there's stuff in our lives that we feel like I've got no power over this. I've got no control over this. I can't do anything about this. And Jesus says, I know, but I can. That's a huge deal, church. 
it's something that we have to take away from the series. The last almost two months that we've been talking about this, if there's one thing to sum up this whole series, it's this. It's the powers that would victimize you, that you have no say over and no control over. Jesus goes, hey, listen, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. I get the last word. I get the final say. The last thing we need to catch is this. In both cases, Jairus and the woman, they recognized that there was sickness within them or within their family that they couldn't fix. And in the end, what saved them was their faith. The confidence that after trying everything, and I'm sure the Bible doesn't tell us this, but, but I'm sure Jairus' 12-year-old daughter just didn't just happen to catch a cold that week. I would imagine that she suffered for a really long time just like this woman suffered for a really long time. And I'm sure they tried everything to try to cure her illness. And she was given a terminal diagnosis. And I'm sure this woman, like we read, she tried everything, spent her last penny on trying to fix herself. But then they realized, like, maybe, maybe Jesus can. Maybe Jesus can, maybe he will change my situation. And if Jesus could, if Jesus would change my situation, then he's worth risking it all. Is that the case for you? You've tried everything. I've tried everything. Imagine if Jesus would or he could change your situation, would it be worth it? Would it be worth the risk? Church, let me just tell you, Jesus is in the business of taking away shame. That's what he does. And I think there are probably some of us in here that believe that the only reason Jesus takes away sin is because he has to. Like Jesus says to us, well, you know, I said I would, so I guess I have to. We believe that Jesus can take away our sin and our shame, but we're not sure he really even wants to. Like, okay, fine, I'll do it. I said I would. Let's get it over with. We hear stories all the time that God loves us, and maybe we believe, yeah, maybe God loves us, but... The only reason he loves us is because he says he has to. So maybe he loves us, but but I don't think he likes me. Maybe God loves me, but I don't think he likes me. I hope that you can see after the last two months of unpacking how Jesus deals with our messes, our mistakes, our failures, our embarrassments, that that's not true. That Jesus wants to take away your sin and shame because what he wants for you is an abundant life. And yeah, sin destroys life. So Jesus says, okay, I'll destroy sin so that you can have life. God doesn't only love you, he likes you. Why else would he give up his only son for you? God's heart for us has been put on display these last two months. You and I, with all of our shame and embarrassment in our past, the the what-were-you-thinking moments, God calls us sons and daughters, the accepted ones, the ones that belong to him. He speaks into our shame and says to us, you are the one who I guard and protect. Come back from ruin. And the only thing he asks in return is that we believe that you shift your confidence away from all the things you think will fix and save you and you, that you think is going to make your life better, you shift all that confidence to Jesus and him alone. So here's where we land. You knew I was going to say this. You have two deals on the table. You can stay in shame and keep trying to fix it yourself or you can admit that you're sick that sin is destroyed or is trying to destroy part of your life. And can I just say, admitting that is not easy. But if you want to experience the healing power in Jesus, you have to admit that you need it. You have to admit that you need it, which means this, you need to confess, which means this, you you don't hide anymore, you don't pretend anymore, you don't justify anymore, you don't try to defend your position anymore, but you lay it all out there in front of him and believe that he redeems, repurposes, restores, renovates, and rescues. I read a great quote from a guy named Ben Stewart this week that I think sums this up perfectly. He says this, we don't change in order to be accepted by God. We have faith that we are accepted by God and Jesus brings about change. That's how it works. So the question we asked at the beginning of this series is this, can people really change? Yes, but can I just say this? They can but there is no real, complete, or lasting change without Jesus. Stop trying to change your life on your own. 
Stop trying to overcome the addiction on your own. Stop trying to break the habit on your own. Stop trying to save your marriage on your own. Stop trying to save your reputation on your own. Invite Jesus into it. There is no true change without Jesus. Jesus is the only way. He says that. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. The way you get to the Father, the way you get to the good life, the with, good, the with God life is through him. That's it. So here's my question. Would you like to rethink your life knowing that you've been accepted by Jesus? Would you like to rethink your life knowing that Jesus makes it possible for you to rise and return from ruin? All you have to do is accept his invitation. So we're going to sing a song. We're going to worship together as we wrap up this series. And I just would invite you in this moment, if you are ready to make that decision, and I'm accepting Jesus' invitation for me to rise and return from ruin, that parts of my life, Brad, feel like they died. All you have to do is trust and believe. I'd love to meet you down front. If you've never trusted Jesus before, we'd love to meet you down front. If you need prayer, we'd love to meet you down front. If you just want to spend some time praying on your own, there's a space right here by the cross that you can kneel. It's comfy. It's padded. You can sit there. You can pray. You can spend some time with Jesus. If you want to be a part of this community, which let me tell you what this community is. This church is full of sinners. And every Sunday, here's what we do. As sinners, we gather in this room and we throw a party for Jesus who is the only one who can change us. And the beautiful part of that is Jesus shows up every time. Would you want to join the party? Love to meet you down front and chat about that too. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. And today, we want to throw a party for you. We want to worship you. We want to sing about you. We want, to, we want to sing your name. We want to tell you how much we love you because, Jesus, you are the only one that can truly change us. You're the only one that rescues. You're the only one that can save. You're the only one that makes the difference in our lives. There is no change. There is no real change without you. So, Jesus, we invite you into this space. We invite you into the party that we're throwing for you. Jesus, we invite you into our lives. Would you restore and rescue and renew and renovate? Would you take away our shame and embarrassment and lead us back to life? Jesus, we love you. We pray all this in your name. Just say amen. Everybody stand up. Let's worship.